I saw a president and his followers who were emboldened and felt brave enough to say shitty things without worrying about consequences. So as a writer, I said, you know what? As a black woman, I'm going to take that same attitude with everything that I write. I'm going to approach this like an emboldened white man. And I'm going to tell the story that I want to tell because the young people who pick up my books deserve that. They deserve stories that don't hold back. Hello, dear friends. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I talk with people who want to live a meaningful life, people who give a damn. Thank you so much for being here. I truly hope this conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. Since the inception of this show, we've tried to highlight all kinds of incredible humans, including black and brown activists, professors, writers, entrepreneurs, etc. And during this Black History Month, we're thrilled to invite a couple more truly astonishing humans onto the show. Next week, you'll get to hear my conversation with actor and activist Coleman Domingo. And this week, I'm thrilled to share my conversation with one of my favorite writers, Angie Thomas. Angie was born, raised, and still lives in Jackson, Mississippi. She is a former teen rapper and a current best-selling author. Like, she has sold a shit ton of books. Her first book, The Hate You Give, has sold millions of copies and has been on the New York Times bestsellers list for 206 weeks. That's incredible. And it turned into a feature film that is also amazing. You should go watch that as well. Her latest book, Concrete Rose, has been on the New York Times bestsellers list since it came out a few weeks ago. All three of her books, including the incredible book On the Come Up, hit number one on the bestsellers list. They're all remarkable. And here's what's even more remarkable. All three of these books were published during the Trump presidency. About books, Angie has said the following words. I look at books as being a form of activism. Sometimes they'll show us a side of the world that we might not have known about. And each one of her books entertains the hell out of us while also introducing us to people and ideas that are continuously changing us. I'm so thrilled to know Angie, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you today. I 100% guarantee that you'll be a better human after listening to our chat. If not, you'll get your money back, I promise. Before we begin, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I always love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, Let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Angie Thomas. Let's go. Angie Thomas, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you for having me. I love the podcast name, so it's an honor to be here just for that alone, if nothing else. <laughs> well, I, I hope you're not disappointed with the conversation as well, but yes, I do I do like it as well. It was kind of an interesting process how it's, it's been interesting because I think we'll talk about faith uh, in our conversation because I think we both have a faith background. I'm still in it very reluctantly, but still here hanging on for dear life. But um, yeah, at first I thought, man, I'm going to get some pushback from people. You know, damn is not the worst word. Like, it's not like I'm mm -hmm. saying let's give a fuck or something. Uh, like I'm, I'm keeping it dialed back a little bit, right. but, but it's still damn. And I've I've not gotten one bit of pushback from even some, you know, conservative Christian friends that I still have. Like for yeah. somehow it just communicates well and it gets people going. So uh thank you for mentioning the thing about the name. I appreciate that. Cause I like it too. I like it too. So so glad you're here. How are you feeling today? And today meaning a couple things here. We're uh what, eleven months into this global pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um hell of a year last year, whether it was BLM protests, so much going on, uh, a ridiculous, uh, horrific presidency that is now over. Yes. Um, you know, we're a week, uh, I think today marks a week, you know, of, of president Biden and vice president Harris. So how are you feeling today? You know, I'm feeling pretty good. All things considered. Um, I, I know for a lot of people right now, it's very hard. 
And, you know, and I, I, I get that. I, I get that. But for me personally, I'm thankful to say I'm blessed. I'm in a pretty good position where um, mentally, emotionally, all of that, just trying to keep that in check. Um, but I, I'm hopeful too. I have so much optimism, you know, it hasn't been drained from me yet. So I'm very thankful for my optimism. That's good. I hope to, I, I too am optimistic, maybe not as much as you. So hopefully some, maybe some will come through our conversation today. Um, mostly because see, I'm working on a, one of the, one of the projects I'm working on on the side is a project called COVID zero. I'm working with this amazing, uh, legend of a physicist, Yanir Baryam. He helped end the Ebola crisis outbreak a few years ago. He's a legend in pandemics. And as we're having all these conversations with people and organizations and different influencers, trying to get people on board with this idea of, Hey, we can get to COVID zero way quicker than uh, then it's projected if we just do what New Zealand and Australia and Thailand and other countries have done, like it's possible. Yeah. And there's just, people are so like tired at this point, right? 10 months, 11 months in. And so I'm constantly looking to steal, bar borrow some energy from other people because I, I, I too remain super hopeful. I don't know about this last year for you and we'll get into that, but I have created and made more things during this last year than ever before. So yeah. I, I'm not naturally optimistic, but I am naturally someone who sees something that's not going well and makes the most of it. Maybe that is similar to optimism in so many ways, but I just kind of took this year by the horns and said, we're going to hold on for dear life and, you know, make, make a bunch of cool shit in the process. So, yeah. um, yeah, I get that. I, I'm glad, I'm glad you're feeling hopeful and you are in, so you were born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, right? Yes. And am I correct in stating that you still live there? Um, I'm right outside of Jackson in the suburbs, but, okay. but I'm like, literally, I'm like two minutes from Jackson. Well, so it's not that far. <laughs> so what is it about? Well, let, let's get into your story a little bit before we get into your work and your books and all the, by the way, I am a huge, massive fan of your work. We are huge. prolific, uh, uh, readers in our home, my wife way more than me. I just don't have the time to, to do it. And not to say that she has more time than I do. She's just more disciplined. She has, we have three kids that we take care of and she does oh, the, wow. the, 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 she, she takes most of that on herself, but she reads like 120, 30 books a year. Wow. I'm at, I'm at like half that. Right. So, you know, you know, our kids, they love books. We, we kids are always like, they read books all the time, but, um, your books. I, so I don't read a lot of fiction. Mm -hmm. And, um, I read mostly like boring, like business books, philosophy books, religion, te religious textbooks and stuff like that. But I devoured, um, your, at least the first two books. I haven't actually full transparency had a chance to get and read the third book yet. Uh, awesome. but I figured I didn't need to wait because I didn't need to wait to talk to you because there's still so much to talk about. But, um, uh, where was I going with that? I started talking about the books. What was I saying? Um, I'm all distracted now. All oh, Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi. So, yes. so getting into your story. So you're born there, raised there. You're still technically there two minutes away. What is it about Jackson? Tell me about your childhood and what, why it means so much to you to still live there today. You know, Mississippi is one of those places where when you tell people you're from here, they're either like, oh, I know where that is. I have family from there. I've been there or Oh, you know, right. it's like it's rarely ever an in-between response. Um, but for me growing up, I didn't know that my state was as bad as it is. Or I should say, I didn't know that everywhere wasn't like here. Hmm. Um, there were things that I experienced as a kid growing up that were kind of normalized to me. Like, for instance, our state flag. We just finally changed the state flag in Mississippi yep. from the Confederate flag. But as a kid, I didn't know what the problem was. I didn't. It was just the flag to me. I didn't know. Um, my mom had to break it down for me and tell me. But when you're in this, you don't sometimes recognize it. But the thing I love about Mississippi is that we're so much more than what people think we are. You will find some of the nicest people ever here. Mm. Um, like earlier, my mom and I made a Target run and I, I don't know how, but like this older white couple were passing us by on in an aisle and 
my mom was just, you know, like, hey, you know, not, you know, in passing, because that's what Southerners do sometimes. Next thing I know, they're standing there talking for 15 minutes about Jesus and how we're going to get this through, through this pandemic and all these people are losing their minds. I'm like, how did a high become that? But that's that's a sum of Mississippi in a nutshell that people don't know about. So I grew up here seeing Southern hospitality personified. Mm. Um, I didn't see the KKK. I've never seen a KKK member in my life, at least not in their costume. You know, Um, I've heard of things, of course. I knew of my state's history. I never, I was never unaware of it. Um, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood that was once the home of Megar Evers. Mm. My mom, my mom heard the gunshots that killed Megar Evers. Mm. So I knew about these things. But the Mississippi that I knew and grew up in was different from the one everybody else on the outside seemed to think it was. So now as an adult, I see more and I understand more and I see some of the problems more that lie here. But I also recognize that there are so many young people who, like me growing up, they didn't see people like them doing the things that I do. Not from here. Sure. You know, you have some who are from here. I mean, we got some pretty big names from here, like Oprah. But kids aren't going to Target and seeing Oprah, you know. Right. <laughs> Therefore, there's this disconnect. And it feels like, can somebody from here who's here, who looks like us, who's within reach, do something on a wide scale? And that's the main reason I stay. This, I- this, la- this last year with the, uh, you know, obviously the Black Lives Matter movement is not one year old, right? But it really, I mean, it peaked mm-hmm. this this past, uh, you know, spring and into summer. Um, what was it like living where you live? Because uh, full transparency, I'm on the, you, you said there's two kinds of people when I mentioned Mississippi. I'm on the side that's like, oh, okay, uh, you <laughs> live there. Uh, I mean, I've been, not to Jackson, I've been to Mississippi, but yeah, it's one of those places where you're like, I would never, I have no reason to move there. I don't, right. I don't dislike it, but like, why Mississippi? There's so right. many other better places to be, right? That's my, my thinking. But I love, it's, there's something special also about being in a place for a long mm-hmm. period of time. Mm-hmm. You get to know it and feel it. And like, yeah, you can, you can know things about that place that, most of the people that have transplanted there can never do. I, born in New York, grew up in Guatemala, traveled the world from, I mean, I was lived out of two suitcases for uh, six, seven years before I got married. And we've lived in uh, now four different states since getting married, right, with our three wow. kids. And so, like, I'm the exact opposite. Like, I yeah. I don't have, my my sense of adventure is it's very keen. It's very honed in. And I am full when it comes to adventures. I've seen, I've seen the world and then some, and I'm very grateful for that. But I get a little bit jealous when I hear, you know, of people that have been in a place for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's something that maybe, I, I mean, we hope to find home, yeah. uh, you know, where we can just like root down and still have our adventures, but like have home. And I haven't found it in my mid thirties. Like, um, but there's something that you know about a place that I have no idea what that's like because I've been on the move. I've been on the move since I was a kid, you know? Mm. So that's special, right? Like you you know Jackson so intimately. You know Mississippi so intimately. Um, so be, living in a place like that through this past year, yeah. what was that like? It's been interesting. It's been a little frustrating at times, but also eye-opening. Mm. Um there was a big Black Lives Matter rally here, march and rally here at the state capitol this past summer. And it was reassuring and it showed the Mississippi that you don't see on the news. Because sure. when I was at that rally, I saw people from all walks of life there, not just Black people. There were white people there. There were Asian people. There were Latino people. Um people from all ages, age ranges, from all socioeconomic backgrounds saying Black Lives Matter. And there were thousands of us. And that's not something you see on the news. You know, Mississippi kind of competes with Florida for bad news. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's Florida man and then there's Mississippi, just not Mississippi man, just Mississippi, period. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that image is what 
I think of when I think of my state, I think of all of those people who are here, who do give a damn, mm-hmm. who who are caring, who do care about this and who do want change and pr- progress in this, this state. Um, we are making some changes, you know, and, and this past year we saw some changes um, besides our state flag changing. At least they finally legalized marijuana, too. Right. I mean, you know, so. This past year, again, it's revealed some stuff. I found myself frustrated at our state officials every single day, cursing them out. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure a couple of them have blocked me on Twitter. I don't even care. Uh, <laughs> I've I've gotten into it with them before in public. Good. I have stories if you ever want to hear those. But <laughs> but the people, mm. the people have shown their hearts. So yeah, we have far rights. Yeah, we have Trumpers. Yeah, I know that. But we also have people who want progress and change. Yeah. And and that gives me hope for this state. You know, our our I have had a similar experience last couple of years here. So I live in Nashville right now. We live in Nashville. We're we're kind of here. We lived on the West Coast and we're heading to the East Coast and or overseas. And Nashville was kind of a two, three year stop to be around our families a little bit more. So we're not from the South. This is our first like I mean, we got dumped right into it. Right. Um, and obviously Nashville is not deep South, right? Like right. Nashville is a, a blue dot in a sea of red, but it's still fairly progressive, all things considered. But being here has been, it's been very frustrating last three, four years. Like, again, you're still part of the South. You still see, you know, dudes drive by in their jacked up pickup trucks with a Confederate flag and a Trump flag and an American flag in the back, right? That still happens here. But yeah. when, when things started happening this past year. First of all, being here, I mean, we moved here a little after Trump became president, mm-hmm. you know, after he was inaugurated in 2017. And so we moved here after that and sort of figuring out where everybody was standing on that on that topic matter yeah. and 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 if they did vote for him, why? Like let's let's try to understand that they weren't like there's so many people that were kind of in that in between. They're not waving the flag, but they also kind of secretly voted for him because uh-huh. of this, that, and the other, right? There's that that yeah. whole group of people, people that I know and love very closely. Um, but when the Black Lives Matter stuff happened this year, a buddy of mine, and Jeremy Cowart and I, we did a podcast a little while ago, and we were talking about how if there's one thing that the Trump presidency has done mm-hmm. is it woke people up. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you if George Floyd was publicly lynched under any other presidency, someone that was maybe more moderate or wasn't causing as much strife and division. I don't know. There would have been an uprising, obviously. I mean, it's horrific what happened. But I don't know that one cell phone video that went viral and then all of a sudden for months, we had tens of thousands of marches around the US, millions of people marching in the street of all shapes Mm -hmm. and sizes, all colors, you know, all skin colors. I don't know that that wouldn't have, I don't know that that would have happened under any other presidency. Like Trump made people care. Yes. I mean, all of a sudden you have people, uh, you know, much younger than me knowing how the government works, knowing, you know, the name of their, forget their senators, like finally figuring out who their mayor is, who their city council members are, like who's running shit around here and do I like them or not? Should I vote them out the next time? Yes. So I I totally agree, man. When these, when these marches started last summer, I mean, I'm out there and I'm like, Okay, not much has changed. There are some things that haven't changed. We're still carrying the same signs that women in Selma, Alabama were carrying in 1963. That hasn't changed. Police, police brutality is still around, et cetera. But what has changed, if you look at the March on Washington, you know, a few white people showed up. Tens of thousands of black people showed up, right? Like it was mm-hmm. all black people. They were there for the revolution. Now, you know, mm-hmm. 50 years later, I mean, everybody, Everybody, everybody was yes. represented in these Black Lives Matter marches. And so now you have young people, you know, the Trump presidency caused AOCs and Ilhan Omars to like rise up and say, I'm running for office. Yes, uh, It's caused young people to say, I can do this. Like I can speak up, I can have my voice heard. And so, although it's been a horrific four years that are now over, not to say, I mean, I don't, I don't idolize any president, any politician. They're all kind of shitty and yeah, you know, and, and kind of good, kind of good, right? But at least what that presidency did is, is it is it woke us up, right? It activated that, people. Yeah, which I'm which I'm very thrilled about. So yes, you you seeing that I'm sure in a place like Jackson, Mississippi, was just very encouraging because I too was just blown. I mean, the only time I've ever felt proud, quote unquote, proud to 
be in Nashville living for a season was during those marches. I mean, I was, I was, I was 100% Nashville at that point. Like, like whatever you need to do to me, arrest me, whatever, like I'm in this, we're, you know, we're marching together. So, uh, it's been a crazy, been a crazy year. Uh, Did did you ever move away to get out of Jackson or was it, have you always been just stayed right there? Did you move away for college or anything? I didn't, I've been here. Um, but honestly, before I became a published author, I'd never really traveled outside of the state of Mississippi at all. Wow. So like it's it's it, my life really changed when that book got pub when my first book got published um as far as travel and stuff goes. Um but I am in the process of getting a place in Atlanta. Um because I do want something different. Um I still want to sure. have roots here. You know, I, I still want to be have a presence here. Um I still care about here and I still want to be involved to a degree, but I think also it's time for some changes too. Um, so I'm in the early process of getting a place in Atlanta, getting a condo, um, you know, and making that change in my life so that I can slowly but surely inch out of here a little bit. Atlanta's a wonderful city for people that create stuff and want yes. to do good in the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, the people there are incredible. I mean, some of the best creators I know mm-hmm. live in, they have chosen Atlanta. I mean, I've just in the last year, a bunch of my friends from New York have left New York to go to not to LA, not to Miami. Mm-hmm. They've they've gone to Atlanta. So yeah. p- pretty telling about the the culture there. So let's talk about before we get into your book specifically, let's talk about you as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is not, I want to talk about a few different things, like very practical things about how how did you start writing, when did you start writing, what was prompting you? But also let's get into the the dynamics at play. Like this did not happen overnight, right? Like you have oh. you have one book that's been on the New York Times bestseller list for a hundred and something weeks, right? Um, like just insane, right? But that yeah. doesn't happen overnight. So we'll get into that. But let's just start very practically. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Um, I knew I wanted to be a storyteller first, maybe not so much a writer, because I didn't know what writing necessarily was at that time, because I was about four years old. My mom oh, wow. would read, yeah, my mom would read me bedtime stories. And if I didn't like the way that they ended, I would tell my own version. So like a prime example is Green Eggs and Ham. I was a very stubborn and strong-willed four-year-old. And I thought it was crap that he liked Green Eggs and Ham at the end of the book. <laughs> sure. So I was like, mommy, no, he should not like Green Eggs and Ham. He should not like them. Then she was like, okay, baby, write your own version. So I got my little crayon and I wrote in the book, I still don't like green eggs and ham. I still don't like them, Sam, I am. Amazing. (laughs) um, So that was like, those were the early stages of me loving storytelling. Um, Then when I got a little older, like I was in third grade writing stories. In fact, um, I found the first book I ever wrote in third grade the other day and I posted it on Twitter. Um, But my teacher would let me read these little books that I wrote to my classmates. And that really just lit the spark within me. Um, But as I got older and I was a teenager, um, I got away from books and writing. And I recognize now that it was mainly because I wasn't connecting with books Mm. as a teen. Like Twilight was huge when I was a teenager. And I have nothing against it, but I couldn't connect with that. And I thought that meant that young adult literature was not for me. So hip hop was how I got my storytelling fix. And it was how I decided to to tell stories. I started rapping when I was about 13 years old and I'd write raps and poems and try to perform them and this and that as a form of storytelling. But um, I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) I just, I wasn't, I wasn't very good at it. But it was, again, it was a way to express myself. Um, But I knew I wanted to, write stories. I knew I loved storytelling. I just wasn't sure how I wanted to do it. So when I went to college, I decided, why not study creative writing? Why not give it a shot? At least for a semester or two, you can always change your major at some point. You know, even if that means you're here a little longer, it's okay, at least give it a shot. So I took screenwriting classes, poetry classes, um, journalism classes, fiction classes. And it was in those fiction classes that I realized, okay, I like writing stories. Maybe I should write books. Maybe I should become an author. So again, it was something that was always there. It just took me a little bit of time to figure out that 
this was the avenue I wanted to take. Did you ever, uh, what was the first thing you ever had published, like a short story or something? Did that happen in school or when did you start like, in other words, you know, a, a lot of this you're, you're writing to yourself really, you know, you're, people aren't seeing what you're writing. What was sort of your, the first thing you put out there and said, hey, everybody, look at what I've written? Because that's always, a, especially as a teenager, as a young person, yeah. that's scary, right? You're, yes. you're, in your, you're, you're in the peak place of your life look, seeking approval from others, right? When we get, you know, when you get to our age, it's like, fuck it. Like, I don't care what people think I'm going to be, right. Me, right? But there's these years where you just, you need that so badly. You need people to approve of you. So yeah. what was the process of actually saying, hey, everybody, here's what I've written? The first thing I ever published or got published was a short story in my school's literary journal. And that short story, ironically enough, ended up later becoming The Hate You Give. Wow. Yep. So that was the first one ever. How many years in between those two things happening? Mm -hmm. That was in 2011 when I did that short story. Um, and I didn't decide to write The Hate You Give as a novel until late 2015. So that's about four or five years in there. Um, yeah, it, it took me a while to get the guts to do that one. And what's the, what is your, uh, another practical question, what is your writing process, right? Everybody does it differently. I do it terribly. That's my process <laughs> is terribly. My, my very patient, probably increasingly getting annoyed at me, book agent is waiting for my proposal because we were trying to write this book with Let's Give a Damn. And it's just not, it's not part of who I am. Like I like writing, but not like to sit down and write a book, right? And it's not going to be fiction. It's not going to be anything like that. It's going to be very, it's a different type of storytelling, right? Yeah. And so I, so my process is terrible. I'm a terrible writer, but what's, what's, how do you, when you're thinking about a story, when you're thinking about these books that you've written, which we're going to get to here in a second, like, how do you even start? Because I too, am a big, I'm a storyteller in a, in different ways. Mm -hmm. We're working at, we're working on a TV show, writing a book. We have a nonprofit fund, the, obviously the podcast. Storytelling is so important. I mean, yeah. so important. Like, like yeah. I was thinking about music the other day and listening to this really beautiful classical piece. I, I forget which one it was. Most of my music listening is classical music. And I was thinking about how important, like I would not be who I am today without music and music is yeah. storytelling, right? Um, and obviously books and I love live theater and, you know, even movies, TV shows, all of that. Like those are all different forms of storytelling. So monumentally important. The biggest changes in society and culture come from, you know, a lot of them start, if you look back through history, they started with, uh, a, an outspoken, uh, actor in a play or, yeah. you know, definitely writing, right? Like writing yeah. has been used so monumentally to shift and shape culture. So what is your process? You ever think, how does, how do the ideas like form and how do you start writing it? And yeah, what, what's the process you usually take? It usually starts out with the character for me. I get my main characters first. And I always ask myself, okay, who is this person at the beginning of this story? Who do I want them to be at the end? And how do I screw up their lives so that they can get to that point? <laughs> Which is essentially what, that's what you do in a book. You mess sure. with somebody's life. You manipulate their life. Um, I, I, it always starts with the character, me getting to know the character, and then figuring out what story best fits them and, and, the, and the story that I feel that they're trying to tell. Hmm. They're even trying to tell me. Um, and, and I jot down ideas and, and I figure out my end first. I always figure out my end first um, because I work my way backwards, not in the writing process when I'm actually writing, but mentally I work my way backwards. Um, and, and if I know the end, I can figure out the beginning. Um, and, and that for me, it's helpful because I do know a lot of writers who are like, yeah, I start, but I don't know where to end. I don't know how to end this story. But if you figure out your end first, it helps you figure out all the other things along the way, at least for me. Um, and I, I do a small outline. Um, I outline my chapters or jot down notes for each chapter of something I want to happen. Um, I get ideas from the strangest places. Sometimes while listening to music, I'll see a scene in my head. Um, I will get to know my characters by filling out Harry Potter, Hogwarts houses, quizzes, <laughs> all that kinds of stuff. Um, and then I finally sit down and try to write the story based on whatever outline I've given myself. Um, and I don't make myself stick to my outline. 
Mm. I allow my story to change if it needs to. Um, none of my books followed the outline that I originally made to the T. None of them do. Um, and that's okay because I think as writers, we have to allow these characters to breathe on page and grow on page. And sometimes that means their story tells itself. And that helps me in so many ways. So eventually I get a first draft done, but the biggest part of it, uh, writing is editing. So I spend more time doing edits than I do drafting. Um, but that's just, that's it in a nutshell. Do you like for, you know, to end up with a, uh, the hate you give, right? What is that? 250, 275, 300 pages or whatever, whatever, it, whatever it is, like is, is the editing process. Like you end up with a story that's like 500 pages or 400 pages and you got to like dial it back or is it more, uh, refining? What is, what does that process look like? It's more refining. Um, I don't think the hate you give, like the original draft was much longer, actually was shorter than the final book ended up being. So the editing actually added to mm -hmm. it. You, it. It evolved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my editor and I had a lot of discussions about exploring different things with certain characters a bit more, digging a bit deeper. So um, it, it was shorter at first. But yeah, it's usually about refining. Um, and I'm thankful that I have an editor who she she pays attention to the small things. Mm. She comes from a very different walk of life from me. My editor is a white lady from who lives in Brooklyn, New York, has never been black or Southern in her life, you know? <laughs> so so she, she, she's going to pick up on things that you might not because you're in it, yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. She does, she does. And if she doesn't understand something, she listens. Um, or she looks it up herself. Like I remember with the hate you give, she had to go on urban dictionary several times and that's okay. Hilarious. At least yeah. she took the time to do it, you know? Yep. <laughs> so it's a very collaborative process. I love that. I mean, that was super helpful even for me. I loved, I loved hearing about that. So let's, let's talk about your, your, I'm, I'm going to say something very tongue in cheek. Let's talk about how Angie became an overnight success. Let's talk about your, <laughs> your, your big break because, um, Again, you're writing and writing and writing. So, you know, you're 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 figuring out from the ages of from the age of four on how to be a storyteller. You're figuring out where you fit in that. You know, one time it's editing Dr. Seuss books, another time it's writing raps and rhymes, and you know, trying your hand at that. What what happened that changed everything? Because again, like at least from the you know, this is our first time you know meeting and talking, but from the, from the outside. Like everything changed with the hate you, like your life will never be the same because right. of the hate you give. How did that happen? What was that? What was the the moment that led up to um, this whole thing sort of exploding? Okay. Well, I have to get kind of go back a little bit um, go for it. And, and look back at when I decided to even write that as a book. Before I wrote the hate you give as a novel, I wrote another book, another manuscript and I sent it to agents and that book got about 200, 300 rejections. Um, I, and I, it hurt. In fact, my agent, my literary agent rejected me like twice. I hold that against him now sometimes. <laughs> uh, but I, I got rejected and rejected and rejected. And finally I just had a conversation with myself where I was like, you know what? Maybe it's time to just put that aside Maybe this isn't, you know, maybe this isn't the right moment for that because the thing about publishing is it could be a good book, but if the market isn't right for sure. it or this, this, and this, so many factors, um, so many factors go into the decisions uh, agents make. So I decided, okay, maybe you should look at that short story you keep thinking about from back when you were in college. You know, you, you find yourself angry, hurt, and frustrated Every single time you hear of another black person losing their life mm. at the hands of police brutality, maybe this could be a way for you to not only express yourself, but to connect with other people who are feeling the same way you do. So I uncovered that short story and I read over it and I saw a book there. I saw the possibilities of a book and I just, I started writing. I was working at a job that I hated. Fun fact, it was a church. Um <laughs> I love Jesus, but I did not like that job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in my lunch breaks, I would sit at my desk and I would write and I would write on this book. But then the fear started popping in. I was afraid, the deeper I got into that book, I was afraid that, hmm, 
would this get published? Mm. You know, we're already having a discussion about how we need diverse books and kids lit. There are so few books about black kids as it is. Are they going to really publish one about a black girl who sees a cop kill her best friend? So all the doubt started pouring in. Sure. And I was on my computer at work one day and I was browsing Twitter and this literary agency was having a question and answer session. And I just got the idea, you know what? Ask them about this. So I asked in this Q&A, would a book about Black Lives Matter be appropriate for young adult, for young adult literature? And an agent responded and he was like, I don't think any topic is off limits. It's just about how you do it. I'd mm. love to read that myself. Mm. And so I said, okay, well, I'm finishing up my edits. And as soon as I'm done, can I send it to you? Yes, please. So I finished Amazing. my... I finished my edits. I send it to him. He reads it and he offers me representation. Mm. I sign with him as a client. He works on the manuscript with me. He edits it with me, gives me notes. Um, we polish it up. He submits it to publishers. Within 24 hours of submitting it, we had our first offer. Wow. And within 48 hours, no, I'll say 72 hours. Within 72 hours, 13 publishers wanted the rights to that book. 13 U.S. publisher. It was a 13 U.S. publisher house auction. And then the foreign publishers started calling. And then Hollywood started calling. And suddenly I'm in the parking lot at my church job taking phone calls with studios in Los Angeles. Mm. It happened so fast and it happened so big. It was mm. such a huge thing all of a sudden. Um, and I went with HarperCollins. I got a six-figure book deal um, and my life was suddenly changed. I mean, within weeks I was telling that job, bye. You know, <laughs> it, it happened like that. Um, so what I always tell people is I'm proof if nothing else that the thing you're afraid to do is probably the thing you should do. Mm -hmm. I was so scared to write that book. I was so scared to tell that story. And had I let my fear control me, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. And also you, you had this, this previous, you know, bit of your story that you just shared about how you got rejected so many times with, with mm -hmm. that other book idea. Right. Mm -hmm. I find that so many people, they give up, See, we don't, we don't have the luxury in life of seeing whether our big break, quote unquote, big break happens after hurdle number 32 mm -hmm. or 365 or two. Every once in a while, somebody gets really lucky and, you know, they're a kid and something happens and boom, they're off to the races. Yeah. We don't have the luxury of seeing that, which, mm -hmm. which means we have to get, we have to know ourselves really well. We have to uh, uh, encircle ourselves with people that know us well and that they have permission to speak into us, into our lives and help us out. And and we have to group all that together with perseverance, just good, yes. plain perseverance. Yes. If this is something I believe in, I've got to keep going. There's another like great, real quickly, a, you know, a great story that's happening right now in the world. Um, there's a guy that's in... Uh, a very loose acquaintance that I'm going to do a podcast with him soon named Thad Cockrell. Mm -hmm. And Thad's kind of blown up right now because of Jimmy Fallon. So Thad, at the beginning of this year, he shared this story on his Instagram the other day. Beginning of this year, you know, he they put out a record last year and they, they had a whole tour built up around it. All of it's gone because of the pandemic. Yeah. So he comes into 2021 just very self-aware that maybe I need to go look for something else. Like I've been, I mean, I've just been going and going and going and going and going and nothing's really happening, right? So he writes this, um, he writes this kind of letter manifesto thing to his, like his manager and says, you know, let's, we'll keep doing music on the side, but I got to go look for something else. Well, at that same time, Jimmy Fallon is walking through a hardware store in his neighborhood in New York and mm -hmm. hears a song go over the radio. It's one of Thad's songs. Jimmy Fallon shazams it, wow. says, who is this Thad Cockrell guy, this amazing song called Swingin'? And the, the, in fact, the, the, the chorus is so, like, it's, it's, 
it was a God thing that, uh, and I don't say that very lightly, mm-hmm. that that song was playing because the whole song is, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. So wow. that song is playing. Jimmy hears it. Thad's manager calls him up the next day and says, we're not even going to talk about your letter. Jimmy Fallon called. You're going to be on the, fa- the Tonight Show next week. Wow. He, he goes on the Tonight Show. Um, right now, that song, Swinging, is the number one song on iTunes. Like, wow. Of all iTunes, number one song, top song. Wow. And, you know, he did the Tonight Show. Then he was on the Today Show this morning. And, like, I just love, I love your story. I love Thad's story. I love these stories of, like you can't give up. Like if it's something you believe in, like keep keep uh, uh, shifting a little bit. Like mm-hmm. maybe you know we obviously have to make these pivots in our life, mm-hmm. but keep going. Right. That's the bottom line. Is like keep going. You never know when a Twitter exchange is going to ch- literally change the course of your life. Yeah, it only takes one yes. You may get a million no's, but it can only take one yes yep. to change everything. That's it. So you have to keep going for that one yes. That's all. So let's talk about this book. Well, let's actually real quickly. Uh, this book that we're about to talk about, Jill Biden has it on her like nightstand or whatever right now. Is that the first lady uh, gave you a shout out the other day, right? With your, It was for the hate you give, right? Not not on the come up or concrete rose, right? Right, right. It was for the hate you give. Um, my friends were joking like, she's a couple of years late. I'm like, listen. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's fine. I don't care how late she is. Jill Biden's been a little busy the last few years. Yeah. You know, figuring out, figuring out a bunch of stuff. Um, no, that's really awesome that the first lady is, uh, or will be reading your book super soon. So 2017, you write the hate you give. It has been on the New York times bestseller list for 172 weeks. Um, I think it's like 200 something now. 200 something. Yeah. We'll, we're must, approaching I, four years. <laughs> I must've seen, uh, a, 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 a outdated number either way. That's a lot of weeks to yeah. be on any list and it's still there at number one. And we'll talk about on the come up in a minute. That's on the list as well. Like, you know, a, a dozens of weeks as well. Just insane. I mean, I'm so, so many congrats for all of that. Why don't you explain, uh, for those that haven't read the books, Kind of give a synopsis of the hate you give, and then we'll go into on the come up as well because there's more I want to talk about. I, I I don't want to spend a ton of time on the books themselves. I want to get more of this, your story here because I want everybody, if they haven't read your book already, to go buy the books. Like all of them, they're all incredible, right? So give a synopsis of uh, the hate you give. Well, the hate you give follows 16 year old Star who finds herself navigating two different worlds her mostly black poor neighborhood where she lives with her family and her mostly white upper-class private school. Um, But her life is turned upside down when she's the sole witness of her childhood best friend, Khalil, being killed by a cop. Khalil is unarmed. And what Star does or does not say can not only impact her community, but it could end her life. That's the hate you give. And it got turned into a movie. Right. Yes. As yes. well, which is which is super insane. How was that experience? <laughs> that was, you know, I did not believe that that was going to happen until I walked onto the set. Um, that whole experience was a dream come true. I, I I used to tell my mom when I was little that one day I would write something that would end up on the screen. Amazing. And, and she had to remind me of that when it actually happened. Um, um, I think what was so humbling about it though was knowing that. Hundreds of people came together to bring to life something that started with me sitting at a computer. You know, um, I, I'm so appreciative of every single crew person who worked on that film, um, down to catering, you know. Um, and and it's, again, it's humbling and it's an honor. So we're getting ready to do it again with On The Come Up. And I'm like, wow, this is my life now. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just insane. I mean, think about, I mean, so many books get pitched, right? Thousands of books are being pitched right at this moment, right? Yeah. And o- only a few will get published. It's even less of a percentage for films because they cost so much more to make, right? Yes. And that this got turned and I'll, and I'll be honest, like again, I told you sort of what my uh what my reading preferences are, and they don't typically lean fiction. I could not get enough of these characters. You did such an incredible job. I mean, I felt like before I even watched the film, the film was great too. Again, Sometimes when you read a book and then read the film or watch the film, they, they're they not the same. Right. One, one is way better than the other. I thought both of them were 
fantastic. Like yes. the film was, I mean, I, I watched it for the first time on a, on a plane, uh, going, going from here to New York. And, uh-huh. um, I mean, I'm sitting in the seat just like bawling like a baby. Oh no, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't take me, it, it doesn't take much to get me crying anyway, but just like, it's so such an impactful story. And I, and how much do you, how much do you think that the current events were influencing your writing? Like how much, obviously, you know, you have your experience as a, you know, a black woman growing up in the deep South. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you said you've, you had never seen, you've never seen a, you know, a, a, I like how you said when you referred to a KK person, you said in costume, cause it truly is just a fucking a costume. costume. Like it's just a costume. We're, you, we're not going to take you seriously anymore, but like, it's like, a, it's like a giant sheet when you're playing a ghost. It's not like, even a good costume, right? Like, at, like least, no. at least dress up like Iron Man if you're going to try to act all badass. Just a, it's just a sheet over your head. Yes. But so, so, so I, you know, we haven't really gone deep on, on you know, your experience growing up as a, as a black girl and now a black woman in the mm-hmm. Deep South. But I'm sure you've seen and experienced so many things that should never have happened, right? Whether it was to you or friends of yours or family members. Mm-hmm. How much did, but this was, again, all three of your books, all three of them on the come up, or Hate Give, on the come up, and Concrete Rose were all written during the Trump presidency. Yeah. Um, how much did everything that was going on in the world around you influence what you were writing on a page mm-hmm. in, a, in a fiction setting? It, if nothing else, gave me the urgency to tell these stories as authentically and as raw as possible without holding back. Because I saw a president and his followers who were emboldened and felt brave enough to say shitty things without worrying about consequences. So as a writer, I said, you know what? As a black woman, I'm going to take that same attitude with everything that I write. I'm going to approach this like an emboldened white man. And I'm going to tell the story that I want to tell because the young people who pick up my books deserve that. They deserve stories that don't hold back. And that may mean my books get banned. The Hate You Give is one of the most banned books um, every single year, according to the ALA. I'm okay with that. Because mm-hmm. that just makes kids want to read it more. But that means I also struck a chord in somebody. And I want to continue to do that. I want to continue to strike chords. So if nothing else, I was so pissed and angered all the time by the boldness and, and the, the willingness to be ignorant. You know, we saw that on full display that I said, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write the stories I want to write. And, and that's, that's so important, I think, because, you know, I'm, we have uh, three little kids. They're six, seven, and eight. Mm-hmm. And s- since they were tiny, since they were, I mean, they're still young, but since even years ago, we started thinking through, like, I don't, the kid, our kids are growing up in a world that is sometimes so beautiful, mm-hmm. so good. And so, and, and, and all the while alongside all of those good things, there's a ton of shit, just a yeah. ton of bad things. When I, like, I, again, I said, I'm not naturally an optimist. I, I describe myself as a realist, like, which means I land in both camps sometimes, you know, sometimes I feel super optimistic and hopeful. And sometimes I'm like, fuck it. Like this, we're, we're doomed. But when I think about the fact that, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know your neighborhood where you're sitting right now, but if I think about my neighborhood, like right now, within a mile of my house, some partner is getting abused. Some kid is getting abused. Mm-hmm. Someone's getting, uh, you know, raped. Like someone's not getting fed enough. Someone doesn't have adequate housing. Like when I start thinking about that, yeah, like why do I want to shield my children from things that they're going to encounter? Like I want to show them things and be able to walk through them with them. Like that's, yeah. as a parent, that's, I see that as my main role is to point them, you know, point out good things in the world, point out bad things in the world and talk through it with them. I'm not here to give them rules and regulations and tell them how they can dress or who they can be. That's not the role of a parent. That almost always ends poorly. Yeah. But I can help them shape their worldview by putting things in front of them. I mean, even the the things that we have that they are privy to in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we have, sh- we showed them, we showed them video footage of the, the insurrectionists storming the Capitol building. Like they need to see, yeah, they need to see people doing that so that we can talk through it and we can talk through what's happening, who's doing it, why are they doing it? Who told them to do it? Like right. all of those things. Right. 
And when you shape them that way, then, you know, uh, again, we don't idolize or worship uh, a president, let alone, you know, the oldest president ever, uh, <laughs> Joe Biden. I mean, I, I like Joe, but whatever. There's a lot to say there. But yeah. But when, you know, when, when, I mean, we, we all share, we all shed tears mm -hmm. on January 20. I didn't yeah. make my kids shed tears. They were so overwhelmingly happy that Trump was out and the first, you know, black and Indian woman was, you know, uh, became the vice president, like yeah. all of those things happening, you know, and that's what happens when you don't, when you don't shield your kids from the things that are actually happening out there, Absolutely. right? Like why Absolutely. would a, like the parent, the kid is hearing the word fuck at school, right? right? So why are you going to be like, oh, that's so off, you know, that's, that's so off limits and you're never going to hear that here. And we have a guardian thing on our TV so you can never hear these things. Like your kids already hearing them. And if you don't make it a safe environment for them to talk about it, they're going to go to somebody else to talk about it. Right. Exactly. So 90 F bombs show up in, you know, in right. It's something like 90, yeah, 90 yeah. of them show up in on the come up and, uh, and it, it, or the hate you give and it continued, I'm sure throughout mm -hmm. your I'm sure that's the same thing in Concrete Rose as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm not going to shy away from that at all because young people deserve authenticity. They they deserve us being real and honest with them at whatever level they are at, you know, and they're going to find out about it anyway. They're having these conversations anyway. Um, why not give them the safe spaces to do that, you know? I wish that these school districts who banned my book were just as upset about all the mm -hmm. people losing their lives at the hands of police brutality as they are as at the F-bombs. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And I think people don't recognize what they do to young people when they keep things from them. We end up with adults who don't care about lives beyond their own. Mm. And we see that in the president we just got rid of. Mm -hmm. I, I can only imagine what would he have been like? What would Trump have been like if he read for one? But if he as a kid was introduced to books by black authors about black people, like just think for a second, what if he read those books about black people by black authors or about Latinx so true. by Latinx authors? Or about LGBTQIA people, or whatever, whatever marginalization you can think of. Had he and some of these other leaders read those books as young people, maybe we wouldn't be having some of the conversations we had the past four years. Maybe we wouldn't be dealing with some of the stuff we dealt with. So you're seeing what happens when adults are only shown, when young people are only shown their limited world without worrying about anybody beyond themselves, without caring or without knowing what's going on in the world. And you want to reproduce that? No, we should not want to. We have to let young people be exposed to lives beyond their own, things that are happening in the real world and have those conversations with them. Because if you don't, somebody else will, and it's going to shape their view in a way that you're not comfortable with. And a lot of kids, to your point, you know, you grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, but there's a lot of kids that have never left their home, but their yeah. home is in like, you know, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? Like mm -hmm. a super white community. And so and I, just, I don't know why I picked Kenosha, but there's a lot of like they're, they're not getting out of their bubble, right? Like right. they've lived there all their lives. And so they need they need to know about Star. They need to know about Brie. They need to know that these stories exist, that these things are happening. Yes, this is fiction, but it's a, fict it's a fictitious representation of something that's happening millions of times yes. all over this country. Right. Yes. So it, it, these books allow them to, again, not a sanitized version of what is actually happening. We're I, Angie, want to show you what's actually happening. I'm not going to dumb it down and pretend that the F-bomb isn't being thrown around in these situations yeah. or that or that Khalil isn't, you know, Khalil's aren't being pulled over for no reason right. and end up dead on the side of the road. Like that is actually happening and our kids need to know that that's actually happening. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk real briefly about um, – the the again quick synopsis of on the come up and then your newest book which is only a couple weeks old right it's just been yeah. out for a couple couple of weeks yeah. uh, concrete rose give us a peek into what those books are about yeah after all the censorship with the hate you give with it being banned so much I found myself angry um, and hurt and frustrated but mm. mainly not because 
I was being shut down mainly because of the message that was being sent to kids who read my book, who see themselves in it. And that is your story makes me uncomfortable and I don't think Mm. anybody should read it. Wow. And I wanted to do something about that. So I decided to write a book about a 16 year old girl who wants to be a rapper and she finds herself censored. Um, Brianna is 16. um, And again, she wants to be a rapper and she sees it as a way to help her mom out and help her family out. Um, But her life is turned upside down when a song she makes goes viral for all the wrong reasons. And she finds herself in the center of a controversy too big for her to control. Um, But in the end, it's up for her to decide how to define herself and how to define her voice. I wrote that book with the Black girls in mind who are always told that we're either too much or not enough and never in between. Mm. I wrote it for the young people who were criticized for how they say things as opposed to people listening to what they're saying. Um, And I wrote it as an ode to hip hop, which has been not just an art form, but a a voice for so many of us, including me. Um, So that's one to come up in a nutshell. Concrete Rose um, is a prequel to The Hate You Give directly. And it follows Maverick Carter, who is Star's dad in The Hate You Give, but in Concrete Rose, he's this 17-year-old kid who's known around the neighborhood for being the son of a former gang legend. But while his father is incarcerated, his mom works two jobs to take care of her and Maverick, and Maverick helps out the best way he knows how, and that's by selling drugs for the King Lord's gang. But then he finds out he's a father, and suddenly he has a baby who depends on him for everything. And when he's given the opportunity to go straight, he takes it. But when King Lord's running your blood, it's not as easy as walking away. And Maverick has to decide for himself what it truly means to be a man. So that's Concrete Rose. Um, all three stories are connected in little bits and pieces. Maybe the hate you give and Concrete Rose are connected a bit more, obviously. Sure. But that for me, it's always about showing these young people who are in these harsh circumstances who still have beauty and, and who still deserve to at least have dignity, be seen as human beings, if nothing else. So that's my goal always. Do you have any plans of, I mean, I don't want you to give away any secrets or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're diving with concrete Rose. You're taking one, you know, one character from the hate you give, mm-hmm. which I, you know, I connected with very deeply. I mean, I'm, I, you know, preparing for this conversation, I looked up, you know, sort of a synopsis of the book, and I saw that it was about Maverick, and and that excited me because I connected with Maverick in the first book, um, and in the movie as well. Do you have plans of diving into more character development? Because I, I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't watch uh, many movies. I don't have time for it, frankly. I just have too much going on. I work too much, and I have three kids, right? So yeah. no, no, no time left over. But when I do, I've got to spend it on, sh- you know, shows and content and even books that do a good job at character development. Like that to me is supremely important. There's one show that my wife and I watch together, um, and it's This Is Us. I knew and you were going to say that. I just had a feeling that show is phenomenal. So that show just wrecks me every time. So I don't want to give anything away, but the latest episode. I don't know if you watched the latest episode. Yes. With, you know, this this new part of like I I I'm constantly amazed that the writers of on This Is Us are able to build out such incredible storylines mm-hmm. from each person. I mean, this whole episode with his with Rand, you know, finding out things about Randall's mom that he never knew. Right. Like just so, so beautiful. We're just sitting over there like, holy shit, like, how do they keep one upping themselves? And you know what's on- funny? The screenwriter and director of that episode, her name is Kay Oyugun. She not only wrote that episode, she directed it. She's the screenwriter of On the Come Up. So fuck just- yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so good. Well, I'm, I'm. It's, it's so exciting to me. So again, I don't know if you're gonna like, you know, I'm sure you have way many more books in you that are that will come out over the next years and decades. But I just love. I'm so excited. I'm even more excited now to read Concrete Rose because I just love that. To me, that means so much because people are so, so many times like a book and you get little bits and pieces from a character and then that's it. And it's like, no, I want to know. Mm-hmm. I want to know so much about this person, right? And so now there's yes. a whole book about about Maverick. That's so exciting. Yeah. I, you know, what we're hoping for um, is to maybe get a show going um, based around Concrete Rose because I feel there's still so much to explore about Maverick um, even after that book is finished. 
And there's so much to explore about the other characters who later become the parents in The Hate You Give, you know, um, Lisa, Aisha, mm-hmm. King. Um, and we're, we're in the early process of talking about that. That's what I'd love to see happen. Um, but yeah, it's funny to me because you don't usually think of the parents in YA as being so popular. Uh, <laughs> but the, these parents... Uh, there are a lot of people who want to know more about them. And I hope we get the opportunity to explore that a little deeper. So you've got the movie for uh, the hate you give, which mm-hmm. again, everybody needs to go watch that. And then you've got, a, you're working on a movie for on the come up. Yes. And then possibly a show for concrete Rose. Yes. You're a Renaissance woman. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm thrilled to uh, just be along for the ride, watching you sort of, develop all this. And I just, I just love that. It, I, I love that it all goes back to a, I mean, it's much more than that, but for the sake of this conversation, it all goes back to a Twitter exchange that yeah. turned into a meeting. And here we are, what, four or five or five or six years later. Um, super incredible, super yeah. incredible. Last thing I want to touch on before, um, you know, we wrap up is What's going on? I've, I've seen a little bit out there about uh, Tough Act Productions uh-huh. and, you know, this idea of bringing diverse stories for young people to television and TV. So you've got your stuff that you're doing, uh, which is obviously taking off and doing well. But what's the what's happening there? And what's the I mean, obviously, the stated goal is enough. It's wonderful. And, and I hope that it works. But what's sort of happening in the Tough Act Productions world? Yeah, we're um, we're working on some stuff, getting some stuff going, getting this production company up and running and off the ground um, on the come up is technically our first project. Mm. And so it's been amazing to be in the producer seat on that one with the hate you give. I was executive producer, but it was kind of like one of those yeah. things of it's in name. Yep. You know, I, I wasn't in on all the meetings and, and all the budget discussions this time I'm in on all the meetings, all the budget discussions um, and, and the creative discussions, all of that. So I, I have a seat at the table this time. But my goal with that company is to bring forth um, more stories, more TV shows or film um, with diverse characters, specifically Black characters, young Black characters. When you think about it, there aren't a lot of those shows out there featuring teenagers, Black teenagers. There aren't a lot of movies out there starring Black teenagers. It's hard to think of them, specifically in recent years. Mm-hmm. And I want to help fill in that gap. So, um, you know, we're going to hopefully acquire some other books that are out there, but also some original content um, and some stuff that people may not be expecting. I have a TV show that I've been working on um, that's more adult-based, but I still think teenagers will enjoy it. Um, I'm really excited about that. It's more in that college age range, which you don't see a lot of in books, unfortunately. Publishing mm-hmm. acts like that age range doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, it goes straight from young adult to adult, right? Exactly. And it's like, hello, we need stories about college or even that age range if you're not in college. But I get to write a show about that. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that. So again, we're in the early stages, but this year we're going to hopefully see some big developments. That's an exciting uh, uh, thing because you're, you're so right that there's so much for kids, obviously, and then you have a whole mm-hmm. genre for young adults and then it skips right to adult when, um, yeah, college age is when you're making all these, I mean, co- college is so weird. That, that that age is so weird because you can't, you know, you can't at 18 when you're going into college, you can't drink. Right. Um, you can't do all these other things, but you can take out a $150,000 loan to go to school or whatever. Right. So you're making good decisions. You're making poor decisions. You're figuring out what you want to do with your life. And there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of meaningful, deep art being made for that genre. A lot there's, there's shows out there, but by and large, they're kind of stupid shows that don't, they're good for like, they're good for binging or for like getting your mind off of stuff, but they're not, they're not making you think and act and weep like, yeah. uh, you know, like the hate you give or, you know, a lot of the adult stuff that's made out there. Um, that's really cool. I, yeah, I was thinking about I was actually thinking about the, what you just said before our conversation about how there's just not a lot of representation for young black actors. I, I love I watched most of Blackish mm-hmm. and I liked Blackish uh, for a lot of reasons because they never shied away from a lot of these topics. Right. When Black right. Lives Matter stuff was happening, they brought it up. And obviously Yara Shahidi's become 
you know, a beacon of hope for young people, right? Uh, she's become a voice all on her own. It's incredible yeah. to see her career sort of bloom and blossom. So I'm excited you're in, you're going to be in on these conversations from here on out. I love that. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Last, last question. Um, and how do I frame this? Cause it's a big question. It can, it can, it can feel very like too general, but what are you hopeful for? Right. We're, we're coming out of some pretty tough years under the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. um, some of the same things that we dealt with the last four years aren't going to go away. Like police right. brutality isn't going to go away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I know that there's some been some executive orders around uh, private prisons and, you know, uh, hiring them to do stuff that the Biden administration has already done. That's that's all well and good. But, you know, there's still so much work to be done in uh, income inequality and, yeah. you know, class discrimination, not being able to get out of the, the, the situation you were born into. There's, um, yeah, there's, the United States is so far, we're so far behind so many other countries in terms of yes. taking care of people, right? Especially, especially, you know, marginalized peoples and minority people, right? So having said all that, in our current state, still in the middle of a pandemic, what are you hopeful for going into 2021? It can be work stuff. It can also be just what you're observing in society and culture. Mm -hmm. I am hopeful that more people give a damn. And mm. I feel very corny saying that since that's the name of your show. But no, I am more hopeful that more people give a damn. Um, I think, like you were saying earlier, the past four years were a wake-up call. Um, and I think more people got active and involved. And I hope that that continues. We cannot get passive again as a, as a country, as a society. Um, we, we have to stay engaged. That, that those same Congress people or council people that you were calling during the past four years, they still need you to call them. You know, the, those same marches you were going to, they still need you to show up. Those same causes you were giving to or making people aware of, they still need you. So I'm I'm hopeful that more people still care, that more people still give a damn. And I am ultimately hopeful in young people. Um, mm. Whether we do the work or not, I know they're going to do it. Mm. This, this upcoming generation, they are so engaged. They are so passionate. They are so determined to fix our mistakes. They are already finding solutions. They're already making themselves heard and getting involved and doing things. And they shouldn't have to, but they are. And that gives me hope. I'm hopeful in the next generation more than anything else. Um, so the kids are going to be all right. We mm. got to do some stuff to make sure that and yes. continue to make sure that. But the kids are ultimately going to be all right. And they're going to make this country what we think it can be. And, and they're going to do it in ways that make us uncomfortable. And we just got to toughen up and deal with it and let them do. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that because I know that those kids will make it so that a book like The Hate You Give is irrelevant in 30, 40 years, that a story like that does not make sense to the generation after them. They're going to make sure of that. Mm, I love that. Angie Thomas, uh, I think the world of you, you're amazing. Keep up the great work. This was such a privilege and an honor to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you. It was my, it was my privilege, my honor. Thank you so much. Friends and damn givers, thank you so much for joining Angie and me today. Buy her books post-haste. Don't buy them from Amazon. Buy them through your local bookstore. They're all amazing. And please visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about what we're up to at Let's Give a Damn. Friends, I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for showing up. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. The music is by our friend Propaganda. And you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.